hey, Colin, uh, what's going on, man? What you, what you up to? Uh, not much, you know, just sort of hanging, I guess. Kind of, kind of bored. You, you want to well, watch fuck. TV or something? Yeah, fuck it. There's always something good on TV. Good evening, Seattle. Thank you for joining us for this special Como presentation. I'm Eric Johnson, and I'm fighting for the soul of my family. This is Christmas, and instead of holding your tiny bodies in my arms next to the warm glow of a crackling fire, I'm once again haunted by the memory of your faces fading into obscurity in the dark void of my aging mind. Haunted, I can feel you still, roaming the halls and rooms of my empty life eternally, ever out of reach, just beyond my grasp. You must be so old now, children. Your mother? Is she well? Please, if I might just hear your voices again, I would give anything, anything, my very soul, if you would breathe life into these weary old bones. Please, kids. Now, if you are hearing my voice, this message is for you. Please let me see you for Christmas. The holidays are a time for family to be together. If you could return a phone call, respond to a Facebook post, or like one of my TikToks, you would be making Christmas merrier for your dear father. Welcome back to Seattle Sucks, a podcast about hating the city that we love. It's me, Colin. I'm here with Greg and Brian, and we have a cast. We do. Hi. We have. Hey, Cassidy. We've got our friend Cassidy, a.k.a. Corn. How you doing? <laughs> Hi, a.k.a. Lucy Lucy Apple Juicy. Yeah. Uh, Cassidy is an ex-podcaster and TikTok thinkfluencer. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> So modest. <laughs> Seattle sucks. Washington politics correspondent Snore, a filthy electoralist organizer, field director, and campaign manager, former shop steward uh, at UFCW Local 40, and a founding member, organizer, and endorser of the Washington Campaign Workers Collective. Hey guys, what hey. up? Hey, welcome back to the show, Cassidy. Well, and most thank you for having me. Yeah, most importantly, Cassie is a repeat guest, a I beloved am. repeat guest. Yes. Uh, and if you want to hear some of her previous talk to learn like whether or not her name or nickname Corn comes from her love of the band Corn, you'll just have to listen to the previous <laughs> episode. We don't have time to get into it, so we can't not get into today. whether it is or not. Not today. not today. Yeah, I mean, you can make a guess. Like we probably wouldn't have bring it up ever if that wasn't the reason, but we'll leave that up to your <laughs> yeah. You'll just have to go back listen you'll to the old episode. To so obviously, we're assuming that she really likes Corn, oh, the band. Um, okay. So, uh, so much to talk about. Cassidy, you have worked on a lot of campaigns. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I crashed on your hot couch in Iowa on the birdie campaign. Yes, you did. You've worked on a lot of other stuff here. Um, and now you've been trying to tell me if I, I get a lot of texts from you. I mostly ignore them, but (laughs) so rude. Like sometimes you text me at 1 a.m. and then get offended when I inform you that that's an inappropriate time to just text someone about some some political campaign worker bullshit. Okay, that well, I only here's the barely thing. Care about. Like you <laughs> fed me in Iowa when I was hungry and scared and cold. 
And I saw you were you were you were come and go was feeding you in Iowa. Yeah, no, but like the only homemade meal I had was from you. And like I'm not even joking. Like you are the only one who cooked for me and you saved my life, remember? You saved my life when I fell down a flight of stairs on the fourth of July. maybe or maybe not from drinking a little too much. I don't know. <laughs> but my point being is that like I thought I could count on you. I thought that I could text you at one in the morning. I thought, you know. I thought you were my homie. But. Yeah, this is like this is what happened. Like you, you save someone's life, and then <laughs> they think like you own their soul for eternity and are yeah. now responsible for them. And or they <laughs> they try to like you know uh, be your servant in this life and the next. And honestly, it's mostly a drag. Yeah, you save somebody's life. You have this formative experience with them in Iowa, and they just from that get some sort of license to think that you formed a relationship, like yeah. a human relationship. Like I would want another count fucking on. friend. Oh my God. <laughs> so rude. Anyway. No, seriously, like when we were in Iowa, you, because you were staying with us, you got to see a lot of the union organizing that we were doing. The, um, the wildcat uh, yeah. labor hell raising on uh, <laughs> shit starting. This is all stuff we want to c- talk about, but first tell us like a bit about what, Washington Campaign Workers Collective is what the fuck? Yeah, you're, so you've been trying you to know, tell me for weeks, I still don't get it. Go on. I hate you. So <laughs> you know, I've been super open on social media, like privately with friends and stuff like that. About yeah, like working on campaigns fucking sucks a lot of the time. Um, you know, no matter who your boss is, no matter how progressive they may be, like more often than not campaign workers who are like the people who are like running these campaigns, like they get fucked over. They don't get health care. They have insane hours. And so just like with the pandemic going on and everything, you know, all of us are on zoom. And so a lot of us campaign workers here in Washington state, like we are either unemployed or we're working from home. And so we started doing zoom meetings together where we just started like talking about all the fucked up shit that we have to go through. Um, and so, you know, because we're organizers, those organic Zoom meetings turned into organizing. Um, and so we formed the Washington Campaign Workers Collective. Very cool. Any so questions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have tons <laughs> of questions about that. Yeah. And yeah. I want to get into talking about all your shit starting that jeopardized and eventually um uh, you know, destroyed the Bernie campaign. I took down Bernie organizing. Sanders. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in Iowa. Yeah. I, re- I just remember, yeah, being in that house and it being like this uh, meeting place for all of the, I mean, the thing is like when you ask all the commies in the country to like come to some <laughs> like uh, flyover state to dead ass place. Get, yeah. To get a, a supposed some kind of socialist old man elected president like you're going to have labor problems like they're not going to take any shit no matter how committed they are to your cause they are not going to take any shit from you which i just found to be so predictable and funny and cool to to see you guys like doing like wildcat organizing to like drafting emails to management being like we will do like a symbolic work stoppage if you fuck with us and that was that's what we want to talk about he was getting a lot of emails from us um because from from this little (laughs) uh sorority looking house in iowa yeah yeah and yeah like we had that big ass house and we would just have people from all over the state would come and stay with us come do organizing because like we were the central location. And so even after the Bernie campaign, yeah, like a lot of us, we wanted to make sure 
that even after the Bernie campaign, after whatever campaigns were working on this cycle, like we need to be better. You know, Bernie's campaign was one of the first to unionize, but that doesn't necessarily mean like it was good or that like our CBA was any good. And so like we've learned a lot from that. And so that's what we're bringing to the Washington Campaign Workers Collective. Um, so we like put like uh, the first thing we did is we put together like a bill of rights for campaign workers because like there's so many things that need to be addressed. But again, like in this pandemic, like we have been fucked over really bad, um, whether it be that like, oh, no you doubt. know, we're working from home and we're having to, you know, pay for our, our laptops and our cell phones and no one's paying for that. Or, you know, we're not getting transitional pay. Um, and then, you know, sometimes we qualify for unemployment. Sometimes we don't, you know, and so things like that, things like not having health care in a pandemic. That's huge. Um, and a lot of the time it's coming from candidates who, you know, they claim to be pro-union, pro-labor. They claim to want to make health care better. Um, but when it comes to their staff, it just they don't actually do it. Um, so we have a lot of super exciting stuff that we're going to be announcing in the next week or two. So I think I'm going to come back on and talk about that more. But what do you guys yeah, think? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think that's, yeah, since uh, evidently as of this weekend, a bunch of stuff is going down that you won't yeah. uh, let us talk about. It's, it's it, kind uh, of hush-hush. Hush. Yeah. I guess uh, we're basically borrowed and we might as well wait to talk about the rest of it. So um, I guess that kind of leaves us without anything to do, yeah? Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Could it be that Korn's lead singer, Jonathan Davies, is taking a lead <laughs> role in all of this? Tune in next week to find out. You'll see. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's not really much to do. You're right, Greg, and it's kind of weird for you to invite your friend over for an episode and just call it quits like 10 <sighs> minutes in. Um, I guess that's it. <laughs> listen, you know, this I guess is my process, yeah, and I, it's worked so far, Brian, okay? <laughs> I guess so. Uh, so if that's it, I, do you guys just want to watch some TV? Yeah. Well, sure. All right. Great. I'm going to say some hard things about this place, not because I don't like Seattle, but because I love it. And I'm going to start by saying this. Seattle no longer feels the need to stop anyone from doing anything for any reason at any time. The most stunning city in America is dying, all right. Businesses and citizens have been largely abandoned, left to fend for themselves in favor of a self-congratulatory compassion, a phony grace. If you shout long enough, Seattle will give you what you want. We'll abandon a police precinct, an entire chunk of the city, and all the people that live and work there. All of it is yours for the taking if you shout long enough. If you want to live somewhere, anywhere, and if you want to pile up garbage and waste and filth, you can do that too. Parks, street corners, neighborhood nooks and crannies, have at it. You think Seattle's going to stop you? We'll even do away with the navigation team just to make sure. Feeling artistic? <laughs> You're in luck. Seattle is your canvas. Have at it. Express yourself. Nobody's going to stop you from leaving temporary scars on the psyche of a damaged city. They're too busy reimagining. If you want to keep using the drugs that are killing you, we'll help out. We'll give you needles. We'll order the cops not to make arrests. We'll legalize hard narcotics on our streets. We will stand by and watch as you kill yourself. Because Seattle no longer feels the need to stop anyone from doing anything for any reason. And if you want to go out into the communities and businesses stealing all day long to get the drugs that are killing you, 
we won't stop you or rehabilitate you or intervene in any meaningful way. And when the citizens demand protection and the businesses say who's looking out for us, we'll shut down the county jail and the juvenile detention center because we're so forward thinking. We'll run the chief of police out of town and hope that bad people stop doing bad things because we're so very good. We'll stop prosecuting criminal behavior. Heck, we won't even file charges so it doesn't show up in the crime stats. We'll handcuff the police and beat down the judges who step out of line. If you want to intimidate the leaders who voice objections, who's going to stop you? Seattle? Come on. We'll doggedly plow ahead with a reckless experiment that is systematically ruining what used to be the best place to live in America. And that, all of it, is at the very heart of the fight for the soul of Seattle. The fact that we no longer feel the need to stop anyone from doing anything for any reason at any time. Yeah. That's right, folks. It's that time of year. Ring those jingle bells. It's uh, it's time for another installment from Como News' own uh, Lenny Reifenstahl for our times. Eric Johnson, you know, if you guys recall, Seattle is dying was one of our, I think, most popular early episodes. Wouldn't you say, Colin? That's true. Yes. So uh, when was that? Not? Seattle is dying. Would Summer it come out? 2018. That's yeah, wild. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, so why not go back to the well? Yeah. I mean, Eric Johnson is. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I, if you recall in that episode, Colin and I just like sat and watched the whole thing <laughs> clip by clip and uh, put out a two-hour episode of us re- reacting to the entire fucking thing. So we're going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so brave uh, servants, public servants that we are, Brian and I just watched uh, this piece of shit in its entirety um, mere, uh, you know, an hour ago. And uh, and Colin and oof. I did not. Yeah, which is perfect Smart because <laughs> we've done the work for you. Our listeners have to do even less work, but now you've you're going to get to hear some clips of it that are key, um, so that we can kind of decode without all the fluff and get down to like the real theses of this thing. Um, yeah, can you like bring the next door posts down from the mountain or the server room? <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, no, you shouldn't watch this. No one should watch this. It is. It's mostly, I, you know, it was basically very boring for the most part. <laughs> it's also a lot of rehashed shit from Seattle is Dying a year and a half ago and from the last, you know, year of um, the local press, in particular Como's coverage of the uprisings. Uh, and, you know, it has a very predictable take on everything. He, you know, Johnson does try to form a basic thesis but as we'll see, it's really basically we need to warehouse people in prison. And he'll go to lengths to say, no, that's not what it is. But um, <laughs> that's ultimately what he says. So in that opening, we just heard him talking about how fucking, uh, you know, disgusting Seattle has become, how we're losing this soul. It's more of the same language he used before. But what's he really saying? Like it's this is all it's all stuff we talked about before we've talked about so many times this is why it's ultimately so boring is it's just like look the poor and addicted are very visible right now and we think that's the end of the world and we're not really willing to engage on a on a serious level with any of the possible causes of that except like the that themselves like really the they say many times it starts with the drugs 
and they don't really explore that any farther. Uh, Greg, you're forgetting to explore it with a Venn diagram. In which it <laughs> does not start with the drugs. Where one circle says drugs, one circle says crime, and the other circle says homelessness. And, and like, there's not a lot of overlap. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, so one of the things he says, not once, not twice, but thrice in his opening statement we just heard, and I kind of want to get y'all's takes on it, which is, uh, this is his sort of thesis that uh, clearly is going to be, or not thesis, but clearly it's going to be the motto that we're going to have to hear for the next year, which is, Seattle no longer feels the need to stop anyone from doing anything at any time. And I was just curious, uh, what are you guys doing with your newfound freedom? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously that's like the most fucking backwards take on what this could be because i mean look at how fucking horrible the police have been treating all of us who have been out on the streets like to say that we can do whatever we want i mean i wish we could i wish that was the case that would have been fucking rad yeah yeah no kidding right well and it was kind of funny because it came out the exact same uh weekend that the you know stranger had this big article about how the public defenders in seattle are like begging you know city prosecutors and county prosecutors to stop bringing people in and charging them on like minor offenses because COVID-19 is like running rampant in the King County jail exactly Uh, yeah and I mean one of the demands of protesters has been to release all protesters drop all charges I mean if we were able to just do whatever the fuck we wanted then there wouldn't be protesters with charges and protesters being jailed yeah and one of their big themes, of course, is that uh, this was, of course, not always the case in Seattle, that you could just do whatever you wanted without going to jail. I mean, contrary to apparently what anybody in the Seattle legal system says. <laughs> but but uh, this was always the case that it used to be the perfect place to live in America. And yeah. um, I just always think that's funny because I'm not a native Seattleite. And Greg keeps trying to justify this claim that Como makes over and over again that Seattle was the best place in America no, because you're always twisting my words. Having not <laughs> having not grown up here, having been a late you know resident to Seattle, my image of Seattle was always as the home of grunge music. And why is everybody so sad there? Because man, that place must fucking suck. <laughs> Part of Seattle's sort of conception of itself for a long time is like everyone's like, "Ooh, this is the secret we don't want anyone else to know about," and it's so perfect here. Um, of course, there's a lot of bullshit wrapped up in that, and it doesn't none of it really makes sense and it's only a certain class of people you know white middle class people that this was ever like this dream place to live and of course like we'll go into like the all the other things are fucked up people's idea of like how crime has changed or how poverty has changed over the course of time in the city is very strange uh but it's not like you know i mean it's not like uh seattle ever thought of itself until more recently as like aspiring to be a quote world-class city you know (laughs) no i did notice he basically stole our tagline (laughs) (laughs) good call dude yeah we can get our lawyer on that yeah totally Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so one of the first guys they interview, and I just want to mention some quotes from this guy because I thought they're very interesting. And he's, you know, uh, obviously the documentary is not edited in real time, right? So this is a choice to make him right up front, right after this intro piece. And it's this old guy who owns a bike store. And, um, you know, he talks about how he moved to Seattle in 1983. It was the perfect place to live. Um, he lets us know that the police have personally told him that, uh, 
you know, they've been told that under their policies, they are not allowed to stop crime anymore. And in fact, will be killed oh by communist revolutionaries <laughs> if they stop any crime. Uh which again is, you know, one of these themes you hear a lot. But he at one point says that downtown Seattle is now Tombstone, Arizona. He doesn't give a year for that though, so maybe he means to, like Tombstone, Arizona today. I don't know. But he then follows it up by saying Seattle's committing civilizational suicide, and he's like very like big on this. And I do kind of wonder, like that language sounds a little familiar. And I'm just kind of curious y'all sort of take on on this old man and kind of putting him up front in this. I mean, I don't know. It, it's not surprising that they have an old business owner speaking for the city of Seattle. We love to hear it. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I mean, this is like normally like their host or the, like their host. This is normally like the guest they get on this. It's just like downtown business person complaining to you, right? Or downtown Seattle Association rep, you know? Um, well, and it just it highlights like what we already know, obviously, but just like the cops are like having whisper campaigns with businesses to like put weird shit in their fucking ear holes and like it spreads and it works. Yeah. And it like convinces people that they're on some sort of weird uh, strike or something. Right. What is interesting because the video, they show some security footage, you know, over the top of this guy making these comments and it's of somebody breaking the window of his bicycle shop and riding off with a Schwinn or whatever. And you know, one way the cops could approach that is they could tell him the truth, like Big Lebowski style, and just laugh in his face and be like, oh, yeah, we'll find it. We got it. You know, we're working in shifts on it, right? Yeah. You know? And tell the truth, which is that, yeah, we're not really going to look. And no. it's because this is like small crime and also we're never going to find it. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the police have been engaging now for years. And as, as you said, Cassie, a whisper campaign to essentially stoke fear in the community and justify their own existence in the face of, you know, the consent decree in the face of increased criticism uh, locally and nationally. And I want to kind of, I was just going to say, like you said, you know, it allows them to kind of like justify not only their laziness, but just ineffectiveness while also Mm -hmm. maintaining those connections and ties to business owners by being like, Oh, like I'm giving you the inside scoop. This is how it really is. Blah, blah, blah. They're able to like further those ties and those connections while not doing anything and not doing their job. It's tight. And those, yeah, and those of us that have like the particular brain bug that means that we are occasionally checking in on the Safe Seattle uh, Facebook <laughs> page know that it's largely been the police stoking the Safe Seattle right, stuff too exactly. and telling them yeah. that, oh, uh, actually, uh, Shava Sawat, who runs our entire government, personally told us <laughs> we're not allowed to, do, you know, do anything about homelessness or whatever. Um, <sighs> yeah, that, that you know, they are essentially creating their, they're operating as a political actor. Hard, hard to believe this organization. Right. But, and I mean, are, it's not even just, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's okay, but it'd be one thing if it was, oh, it's a whisper campaign amongst business owners police whatever but like we have seen time and time again that these whisper campaigns and the bullshit that they push like not only do they get put on programs like this but like the whole oh they're checking ids thing like that was reported as if it was fact when in reality it was just a bullshit whisper campaign yeah and i kind of want to go to this other comment he made right after the tombstone arizona comment that seattle's committing civilizational suicide and at least to my ear and i'm curious if it struck other people's ears the same way is it seemed to be a thorough 
uh, internalizing of the like race suicide talk of the last four years. I mean, you know, uh, you, had, you had Trump and the race suicide tweet. You had the Jews will not replace us chance, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's and, Nazi shit. and it is worth noting right. that watching this documentary, the you know black population of Seattle is black people make up seven percent of the population of Seattle. They're approximately seventy percent of the people featured in this video, like wow. as the enemies, right? You know, whenever there's a homeless person, they're black. Whenever there's a crime they caught on video, they make sure that it's a black person committing the crime, right? So, I mean, there's a vibe, I guess, is what I'm saying. Watching this, an unmistakable Bad vibe. vibes. Going back to what you said, Brian, about him moving, I, I did watch maybe the first ten minutes of the film, so I saw. Oh my god, you part. lied! Well, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't exactly. Lie, but, I feel uh, so unincluded. I, I, oh I only saw up to this, so trust okay. me, the rest okay, of this okay, okay, I'm okay. going in blind, um, or I am going in without any knowledge. But uh, it, it's interesting that. He, my recollection is that he moved in 82, but either 82 or 83. That's the year that Streetwise was filmed. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really odd that this guy is painting Seattle as this wonderful utopian enclave that had no problems at all. Um, like this was literally around the time that, uh, you know, Gary Ridgway was out having a ball. Uh, there's in that movie follows all kinds of kids just on the street in Pioneer Square um, so whatever version of Seattle that he's romanticizing probably uh, never actually existed. Well, you Are know you what? It probably did exist memory? for him. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. No, listen, the Seattle was in the, you know, in a long term, long, very serious, very famous and still sometimes actually remembered when only when it's referenced as like possibly happening again because of Shauna Swan recession. Okay. Like a major, major yeah. industrial recession with thousands of layoffs at Boeing. So this guy probably, yeah, was able to come out here from wherever he came from, buy a house cheap, like incredibly cheap. Like the it was a place at that time, like there are now, you know, where you're like, oh, wow, I could go to Nebraska and buy a, you know, uh, you know, 500,000 square foot house for, you know, 50 grand or something, right? And that's like what it was like out here, except it's not like a shithole like Nebraska, right? This is this is the myth of Seattle, right? Because at this, uh, there was one time when you could come out here and buy a house in the city, not even out in the middle of nowhere. And it was this pretty place. There were trees. But that's if you were middle class, white, maybe not super rich, but, you know, you built this myth around you that this was this magical place to live. And now this guy... Has had a thriving business here for decades. His house he bought, or however many times he's traded up, have probably exploded in fucking value over yeah. the course of his time here, making him from like a lower middle class able to yeah. do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. From starting out at a place where he could move across the country and buy a house, probably, and start a business, to being through no fault of his own, astronomically rich. You know just because of inflated home value over the last 40 years. And all the while, there have always been poor people in Seattle. There has always been drug addiction, just like the whole fucking country, okay? Mm. There's never been a time. So there was always a black population in Seattle that was the most poor, had the most, like, (laughs) just getting the shit end of the funnel for all of our social problems. And there was always a larger poor population just like you said in uh you know in pioneer square 
there was even homelessness throughout all this time, though that has exploded totally, uh, due yeah. to the same fucking housing price increases that have made this this whiny asshole fucking unbelievably wealthy. Right. It's like maybe maybe things weren't so bad for him during that time because like, I don't know, he had access to housing. Maybe. I don't know. That would help people help Seattle be less uh, terrible. I don't know. Weird. Well, he was economically secure. Right. So that's so that's what he, he's, he's mistaking that for some <sighs> glorious era as opposed to just the difference between him and other people. Right. right. And he was isolated from it mm. to a certain degree he didn't right you didn't see it own yeah. home neighborhood yeah, and right. his and the neighborhood his businesses was in and his commute he didn't see yeah. the level of poverty he didn't have yep. to interact with it there was poverty there was not as much homelessness though right. there was homelessness we have mm. had an explosion of yep. homelessness but there was drug addiction people were doing it in their homes yeah exactly um, and it was affecting yeah. right. a, the poor population the most there were right. like these are all things that are have existed and now this comes back to what from Seattle is dying to what the fuck we've been shouting about this entire time we've done the show for three years or whatever. It's, they just don't want to see it. It's, they just, it's literally having it in view that drives all of this. Yeah. And I mean, interestingly, you know, Kobo is going to portray all this stuff as if it were new. Yeah. As if the urban poverty is some new thing. One that only happens in Seattle and two is brand new. And, you know, despite the fact that the term Skid Road comes from Seattle, but they also are going to depict the drug issue as a new issue and something totally new or something totally located in Seattle. But like, uh, again, as a kid who grew up outside the city, I knew two things about Seattle uh, in the early 90s, which was it's where grunge came from and heroin. (laughs) Yeah, but we'll leave the fantasies aside. Let's uh, let's go back to the early 90s. Let's take a trip back to 1993. So this is going to be a speech they play from city prosecutor Mark Sidron uh, from 1993. And then they have old man Sidron on himself. Uh, He does a little follow up. I can't remember if it's in the clip or not, but let's go ahead and take a listen. We are pretty much like those other big American cities back east, as we used to say when I was a kid. I think that's one reason why the increasing disorder on our streets touches a nerve for so many. If the past is prologue, We have seen one version of the future in city after city, a dying retail core where there is more criminal than commercial activity, where the simplest rules of civility are ignored without consequence, where random senseless acts of violence become pervasive, culminating in the migration of those who can leave. This is not Seattle today, but this downward spiral doesn't happen overnight, and it will be more than just a bad dream if we don't wake up to the challenges we confront and act. The bad dream is here. Mark Sidron sees it. We all see it. The question is how and why and what are we going to do about it? So an interesting thing he talks about here is that they're looking across the country and seeing, uh, you know, this was an obsession in American politics. The the decay of uh, urban interiors and rising crime in the 70s and 80s. And he's remarking there there in 1992, like, well, gosh, aren't we lucky we haven't suffered the same fate as, you know, uh, parts of Manhattan, as Detroit, et cetera, basically. But like warning this, you know, basically he's a tough on crime Democrat prosecutor warning. You know, that could be here. That could happen here um, if we're not careful, if we don't uh, if we don't take action now. And what, what's interesting is like, again, he, you know, he gets this wrong like we we're just talking about there was crime and there was poverty there always has been in this city 
what is interesting is it's just not as visible, right? This is this myth. They think of this as this perfect place without that. This isn't. I mean, my parents are both refugees from Eastern shitholes, like, you know, Rust Belt uh, decaying places who like came out here and were like, wow, this place isn't like that. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Even though, again, like there was an indus major industrial recession here in the late 70s that lasted a long time. But there's another thing that is important to keep in mind when talking about the way Seattle has developed differently from, say, eastern cities that people here compare it to. And that's that it being the Northwest uh, was one of the most successfully, pristinely, uh, rigorously segregated cities in America. Mm -hmm. So... This city was ruthlessly redlined in a way that most places never were to a degree. And, you know, it's called the Central District, but that the red line district is east of the downtown core of the city. So it was effectively from the beginning uh, cloistered off in a place where you didn't have to go. That's not the way it it was in lots of other places. So so when white flight started, you know, decimating urban neighborhoods and uh, urban tax bases, like it didn't happen the same way in Seattle. So, I mean, that's like key. Again, race comes very much to the center of this. This is just historically one of the most like ruthlessly racist places there is, you know. No, I was just going to say like, yeah, you know, maybe that dude was like, oh, it's coming in the 90s. But yeah, it's just like we were just so redlined that bro didn't know what was happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the irony of his statement, right, is that Seattle was one of the early adopters of it. And one of the prime examples of the sort of actual modern trend in city development, which is the money is all moving back to the urban core and the poverty is being pushed out into the exurbs, right? And Seattle is a perfect example of this. Our downtown uh, area is some of the most expensive real estate in the yep. country. I think it's the third most expensive real estate in the country. So it, it's one, I mean, it's hilarious to play that and be like, it's totally come true when it very clearly has. I mean, we have people paying $2,500 a month to live in a 40-square-foot apartment. So I think it leads to this kind of thing that me and Greg talked about the entire time as we were walking, watching this documentary, which is, who is this documentary for? Yeah. Like, who, who is the audience? I feel like a teacher now. I'm asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of answering. Well, it's them. clearly... Uh, I mean, as you Are were you saying to watch it, Brian, it's yeah. not... It's <laughs> for no one who actually lives in this city. It's for people in Bothell. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, like in Bellevue yeah. and like all the suburbs. That still have. Yeah, like all the places that still have like some money in it, right? Yeah, it's for people in fucking Everett. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those funny things. I mean, it's funny to say it's for people in Everett because in a way it is for them too. But, you know, anybody in Everett who had ever, I mean, this is for people who never go to Seattle. Right. Because if you lived in Everett and came to Seattle with any sort of regular consistency, you'd realize like, holy shit, our town's like way fucking poor. <laughs> like way, you know, whatever. But uh, it is a fantasy being sold to all these people who don't fucking live here, right? Sold to a national audience, a suburban audience, etc. And it just always reminded me of, I would have these, when I worked up in Snohomish, I'd have these guys at the shop that I worked at who would tell me about how they never go to Seattle like without their gun or whatever. And I'd always be like, oh why? God. And they'd, they'd just be like, and they would tell me about like how there's like poor people everywhere, which just be serious. Poor means code for black or whatever. And, but it was always one of those funny things of like, they imagined Seattle 
as like Detroit in the 1980s or more accurately Detroit in a RoboCop film as opposed to, again, (laughs) one of the wealth. It's like Seattle is full of crime, depravity, and inhumanity. It's just not the kind you're thinking of. It's, it's, you know, Bezos built, like the Gates Foundation's in downtown Seattle. So it's definitely full of crime and depravity, but but not what you're imagining. Not what you can handle with a gun. Yeah, they're mapping (laughs) what they're seeing onto a, and now totally outdated like understanding of poverty and mm-hmm. wealth in America that was never really true yeah because there was a time when you know we saw industry grow in places and make it wealthy and then capital flight basically pull it out and destroy those places and that what has made people poor and that's not how it works now as much um so we're mm-hmm. in this economy we have very, very rich people and we have poor people. And there's a lot of very, very rich people and wealth concentrated in Seattle. And you can have that and have it be this incredibly wealthy place for most people and still have an underclass of disposable excess population who live on the streets. And that's incongruous in people's minds. Like they don't really have a model for that if mm-hmm. you're just, you know, Joe Schmuck yeah. from Everett or something. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also one of those things that comes from never having interacted with the city in any real or serious way. Um, Yeah, and so to kind of get at this, they they go and they, it's very funny, they have an interview segment that they come back to later in the film too with this guy from San Francisco and they keep saying, they say one time they're in San Francisco and they just keep saying in the tenderloin after that. And I think it'd be funny to like uh, poll viewers of this documentary and ask them like, you know, whereabouts on a map of Seattle is the tenderloin and see if they would try like jaywalking segment. Yeah. Like, uh, they, they do their best to try and pretend like this is in Seattle because they were, I guess we're having a hard time finding, uh, interview subjects like this man, which I'll get to, I'll get to why here in a second, but he is a guy who claims, I'm going to say claims because I think that literally 80% of anything he says on this is just an outright lie, but he claims that he, uh, uh, had fallen into drug addiction, had become, uh, homeless and you know he tells the story about how he he had he's seen people get hacked up with machetes on the mean streets oh you know God. and uh <laughs> that you know that homelessness is a virus and that uh if it wasn't for one cop who continued to arrest me over and over again i'd be dead by now um so again this is this narrative they're gonna trot out exactly two people because i think that's all they can find who are going to claim that the police saved them by basically harassing and arresting and jailing them constantly uh they were able to be saved um but it is this image that they're trying to portray right of uh if you go to downtown seattle i mean you could get hacked up with a machete it's a fact it's a fact yep (laughs) <laughs> no, when in, reminds- when in reality, okay. like anyone who has lived in the city and who has also lived in like rural Washington state, like I am far more afraid of getting hacked up with a machete in yes. Port Angeles <laughs> than oh, yeah, I yeah. have ever been in Seattle, ever. Well, they keep talking about, so at one point in the sort of in the same area, it's interesting they bring this up because they keep bringing up the thing about murder rates and they say that, you know, uh, you know, the last year's murder rate, by last year, that means 2018, which is the last finalized one. But anyways, last year's murder rate was the highest it's been in five years. And it was kind of funny because me and Greg were sort of laughing at that. And I was like, well, you know, what does that mean, right? And so I, I ended up looking it up and I was like, that's one way you could say that. 
Another way you could say it is last year's murder rate was half the murder rate in Seattle in 1999. <laughs> Still another way is you could say it's half the murder rate of Tacoma. Still another rate is you right. could say it was way down the fucking list just for areas in Washington and is yep. well below any sort of urban average yeah. in the country. In the country, yeah. Another way you could say it is Seattle is actually an incredibly safe city, like relatively. Safe for America. <laughs> yeah, for mm-hmm. America. Always yep. has been. Maybe not for a civilized country, but for this one, <laughs> yeah. it's incredibly yeah, exactly. safe. For, yeah. for as shitty a country as, look, again, the myth of Seattle, there's truth to it. You know, like, uh, that again, this all just comes down to like, yes, People know this. People have understood this. They're like, oh, you can come out here and it's not. Yes, this is still America. I didn't have to move to Canada, but we don't have the same degree of social malady that I see other places. And Mm -hmm. what is bothering people is, oh, no, I'm seeing visible evidence that bad things are happening. The truth is, yes, this is a shitty country. It's this entire economy is an engine for creating poor, desperate, homeless, addicted people. But at the same time, the scare tactics here being used are totally fraudulent and dishonest because this is with everything that is happening here, all the poverty, this is is that does not correlate to danger because this is still one of the safest fucking places you could possibly live in America. Yeah. The farther out of Seattle you get in Washington state, the higher the crime rate is. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, the, iron, the irony, of course, be for Mark Sidron's complaining in 1993 about the fact that, you know, we're going to have uh, urban warfare. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, he was one year away from uh, a super predator speech or whatever. The reality is this crime in Seattle was already declining when he made that speech. It has been like in every city in America has been on the decline since the early to mid 90s. Um, no, and I course, mean, just like yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, just like the saying, like, you know, ignorance is bliss. And I think that like privilege is ignorance. And so a lot of white Seattleites, like they have been able to live comfortably. And even if all this shit is going on, like they don't have to see it. And so that ignorance is bliss. And that like, I think that like really reminds me of just like what's going on right now on the bigger scale with like Trump and Biden is it's like what fucking sucked about or what was kind of good about Trump was like white people had to fucking pay attention to what was going on. You know, Mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden, like people are so stoked, like because Biden's coming in. But the reality is, is they're just going to go back to the ignorance is bliss sort of mentality. Um, And like black and brown people are going to continue to suffer. Oh, they're so excited to go back to brunch. Yeah, you can't. And so that's what people in Seattle want. Like, I feel like that's well, that's what they're mad about. They're like sort of people. Yeah, I can't enjoy brunch if there's poor people over here. I where the fuck is my ignorance? I was blissful. Yeah. Please give me back my fucking ignorance. I want to That's maybe hear some poverty is. statistics yeah. once yeah. in a while. I don't want to have to fucking see it. Right. But it was, and I do think it, it it's such an important point that you bring up there, Cassie, because I, I, during the entire four years of Trump, as far as I could tell from people that would just be like shouting at me, you know, whenever I try and explain <laughs> that like ICE was imprisoning children or like you know, the immigration was right. imprisoning children, <laughs> have been for decades, right? Whenever you try to explain this stuff, people would get furious at me. And the more I kind of like right. try and peel away at what they're mad at, what it really came down to is they're mad that they had to know about it. Exactly. Like they're mad yeah. that they couldn't turn it off, that it was that was being shown to them on the news or whatever. And it made them furious. And they couldn't look it, away. Yeah. 
Exactly. And mm-hmm. to your point, I mean, if Seattle was this dangerous city, you wouldn't have to have the graphic images of uh, violence and stuff that this documentary sort of wallows in because people would know what you're talking about. But right. of course, they don't from any sort of personal experience. So you have to show it to them. Yeah. And that brings me to the yeah. scene that I want to kind of describe to you guys and, and get your sort of take on it, which is there is a scene that can only be described as the knockout game scene of the film. Yeah. And it's taken from a security cam, I think, on the side of the courthouse. And everything in it, I mean, Eric Johnson came so hard when he found this footage. But oh my God, yeah. there is a young, young, skinny, blonde white woman standing at oh the court. Oh, no. Bleach blonde, clear as day. And then a, you know, male in probably his 20s or 30s, right, who... He's black, but it's a little hard to tell in the security footage. So don't worry. They give you a, a very clear mug shot later just to drive home. Uh, basically walks up and punches her in the head. Right. And then walks off. And they really like show it multiple times. They like really linger on this and really talk, like spend. There's a whole basically like 10 minute segment on this. And, you know, it, 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 like literally after they show it, Eric Johnson goes, perhaps you'll find this symbolic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But on the one hand, it's obviously horrifyingly racist, right? And it's just, you know, uh, engaging in the sort of uh, worse racist fear-mongering. Uh, although, yeah, I mean, real, like, n- early 19th century racist fear-mongering. But on the other hand, why would you show that to anybody or have, feel you have to show this if, you know, people actually are feeling in their heart that it's the scary place from any sort of personal experience, Right. Like you're teaching us something by showing us this. This is yeah. This no, it's like see, look, innate. see, like see, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, it's it's truly astonishing. I was every once in a while, you know, because we this is our third, you know, uh, dip into the Como homelessness God. series, and you feel like you've seen it all. But every once in a while, they come out and surprise you. The knockout game video. Uh, was a little shocking. They must have really searched for that because I can't believe that wasn't on like federal or federal. I can't believe that wasn't on national news uh, broadcasts. But yeah, I you should have gifted it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. oh, it's, gonna, it's gift. gonna be a gift by the time this is over. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. I have not checked any of the usual like Facebook hives to see how they've interpreted this yet. But I mean, I can't imagine <sighs> that this scene isn't going. I mean, the one plus it's like 45 minutes into the movie, so you'd have to have watched that much of it to see it. But I am so, kind of curious. There was definitely yeah. a lot of drop-offs by then. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Like there's <laughs> no way that you know it's the mid it's the big midpoint, you know? It's like you hook them in for the rest with that. Right. Yeah. 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 Well that like no, this but one's I mean, for all the podcasters watching. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> for the podcasters and Rich Smith. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, that's what they do. They just give like one anecdote and they're like that's Seattle. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> as much as I don't want to excuse this woman getting punched in the head or say that it's okay or anything, it's also a city of 700,000 people that is the like centerpiece of a region of like 3 million people. Yeah, and, like wild uh, shit happens everywhere. Like, you don't yeah. think that people are getting punched in the head in fucking downtown Squim? Like, it's happening. Yeah. People, people getting punched in the head. As somebody who's been punched in the head, let me tell you, people yeah. get punched in the head. Yes, um, they do. Th- this is different because that woman was minding her own business and didn't deserve it. <laughs> That's true. Well, <laughs> you know. Not just saying, yeah. I mean, yeah, whatever. I mean, here's the thing. The the Eric Johnson 
uses this in two ways. It's part of a narrative about how, you know, certain parts of the city have been abandoned by the police department so that they just won't, you know, keep people safe on fourth in front of the courthouse at the main entrance. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of this does a lot of this does take a turn toward talking about mental health. And the the man in the video who allegedly punched this woman uh, is claimed to have mental health issues. And, you know, you can believe that. Uh, And he Johnson, you know, spends a lot of time talking about how we don't do enough for people with mental health issues in this. And there is, you know, this is a point uh, we can agree with him on. Right. But like we come to find that it's all used in this way to um, he ultimately uses it uh, to make it sound like his whole program is ultimately compassionate, but it's ultimately all leading to warehouse people in jail. So. Well, and okay, like, let's say, sure, like, we agree, like, we need to do more for people who have mental health issues and stuff like that. Is blasting this guy on fucking local news station a way to help the this person who's obviously dealing with a mental health crisis? Like, that's not helpful. Yeah, no. but also, <laughs> like, you know, you don't get to have it both ways. In all the th- ways that, you know, Eric Johnson is ready to talk about how we need to do more for people's mental health. Key things like housing do not come up in his program, his suggestions for how we do this. In fact, he scoffs at the very idea. So, like, you know, um, so it's just it's totally disingenuous. Yeah. At the end, he even uh, makes a point of pointing out that housing actually would not help the situation. But it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's very funny because in different hands, this story and a lot of this stuff that he shows could be an argument for like, wow, we really need a free at, at the point of service universal healthcare system that includes things like mental health treatment and stuff like that. Like, and and, well, and drug treatment. Yeah, like that is a really uh, big problem. You're right, Eric. I do think we should right. have a more compassionate uh, healthcare system paid for by the likes of Amazon. Of course, that's not his point. But the other part of it, too, is that he, they, he tells the story of this of the guy who had uh, punched someone. And he'd been in and out of jail. I think they said he had been like arrested and been in jail like 30 times since his childhood. He had, you know, had like drug issues. He had these mental health issues. He says that the what that he was hearing voices that told him to punch a woman or whatever. And again, in different hands, you could say, wow, this really shows the brutality of the American criminal justice system yeah. that takes somebody that either had or didn't or gave them mental health issues, and it sort of brutalizes them on and off, harassing them constantly, you know, putting them in cages, treating them like animals, and look at what that creates. Like, look at the problems that that, that leads to, right? So it's kind of funny, like, you know, in just different hands, you could point to this exact same thing and be like, wow, what a fucking horrifying, brutal system we have This is the that key, failed. One of the key lies of this whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. That this is a major, like, conservative way of thinking about this stuff. The, his whole vision of this is that uh, actually right now, uh, our criminal justice system over the last, you know, 10 years, because we're, you know, liberal, compassionate, uh, you know, naively compassionate Seattle has been getting so lax and we've just been letting everything slide. And that's what's caused this problem. Never mind the fact that like Shama Sawant and, you know, the real radicals have only been in power for like less than a year. But uh, and Shama Sawant's only been around for a while, like in his one person, you know, he he really conflates like 
because a lot of this ends up being about like the the council's you know defund efforts etc which of course are like contemporaneous with this documentary and have not taken any effect but he's sort of conflating that with like the general attitude over because we're seattle and we think of ourselves as lib lib and compassionate like that's led to this uh devolution of law and order over the last decade that has led obviously to this explosion of drug use and homelessness and of course none of that fucking tracks because what we actually know is that like we are continually imprisoning more and more people our police budgets have gone continually up and up here and every just like everywhere else in america and this whole thing is about just denying that any of our problems have any economic or systemic causes you know it's it's just it's about our li- liberal compassionate attitude and permissiveness that has caused all these problems yeah who's in charge like mayor jenny and these things but you're talking like piecemeal things that have sort of relaxed in in recent years that are sort of absurd to claim as the cause of our you know alarming catastrophe of homelessness well, and it does imply, I mean, to the Mayor Jenny point, it, you know, I think the only time she even comes up in the whole thing is to imply that she was like Grand Marshal of the Chop. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, her, had to, it, they probably had to cut all her parts out after her announcement. So, well, basically, yeah. they, the only time she does come in is to say the Summer of Love quote on, oh on CNN. And so it's basically like, yeah, our mayor who was, you know, yeah, like, you know, we can blame for the Chop because she was so into it. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's for an audience that has very little interaction with the, the city itself. And so to the point that Greg was making, there is an interesting segment at about the hour marker where they start talking about the elephant car wash. And and then they start pointing to other businesses downtown and like, look at all these retail businesses downtown that are uh, going out of business. And the and the funny thing is they they hilariously just say offhand, sure, COVID's played a part, but... <laughs> How does that explain why all these businesses are going out of business? And the implication is is that the reason why downtown retail is struggling is purely because of homelessness in the area. Which is we've heard this has been a talking point the last two years. You know? Yeah. And it is this funny thing because it is essentially using poverty to try and explain away what can obviously be explained away by uh, you know, capitalism itself, right? If if only there was a man in this city who could <laughs> we can point to for why physical retail is going out of business. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> you know, like everywhere in the world is, de- and every retail business is detail is dealing with this problem of brick and mortar stores being coming unviable. And every fucking retail chain is closing stores even before COVID. But you know, they have to look around the other side of the globe or across the country to, to ask why. And we, it's right here for us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just they should have done that whole bit like standing in front of Jeff's balls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But I mean, just astonishingly funny thing. And and again, they do this thing the Seattle Times kind of does too, where like when they talk about the elephant car wash specifically, they're like, uh, you know, we talked to the owner. He said he's leaving because of drug use and homelessness and crime, and it's too expensive to be here. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa go back to that one. <laughs> So I have a sneaky suspicion that it's too expensive to be in downtown Seattle might have more to do with why he's leaving his business than yeah. any of the others. So 
no wonder when, you know, all these business, whether they're corporate or small business tyrants who are being driven out by the insane prices and the loss of retail dollars to online, but because they're in the same fucking Como Seattle Times media ecosystem, yeah, they're also going to throw in, of course, the, oh, and the pores are making me poor, you know? Mm-hmm. It's the presence of poor people that is uh, threatening the viability of our ec- of our economy. <laughs> that that yeah, that's that's the direction that works. All right, well, let's uh, let's hear another clip. This proposal uh, is sponsored by Councilmember Herbold. Um, it is to consider passage of legislation uh, that would allow the dismissal of crimes of poverty, uh, and it would do so by revising the definition of uh, duress um, as a defense against prosecution. What exactly does that mean? Well, it means that if someone commits a misdemeanor crime, anything less than a felony or DUI or domestic violence, they could use symptoms of addiction or symptoms of mental illness or symptoms of poverty as a legal defense. Think about that for a moment. You could steal something and simply say, I'm poor, I needed the money. You could steal something and say, give me a break, I have a drug problem. Those would be legal arguments. What kind of crimes are we talking about? Assaults, harassment, trespass, and everything from sexual exploitation to cyber stalking. Over 100 different crimes listed under the Seattle Municipal Code would effectively be nullified. Lisa Herbold quoted a city council work group from 2015. The work group recommended that the city move away from reliance on the criminal legal system to address these behaviors related to poverty, illness, and oppression, and aim to reduce the criminalization of poverty. I am not aware of any legislation like this anywhere in the United States, even globally. All cities have criminal codes to protect their citizens from criminal acts. This would basically create a legal loophole that swallowed all those codes and said, green light to crime. If you don't feel very protected right now, this would wipe out almost all remaining protections that we have. Uh, Finally, something new, a new cause celeb for the right in the city. Something exciting to sink their teeth into. Well, and it's probably worth explaining just a bit what the fuck they're going on about, mm-hmm. which is a proposal that would allow you, if you, when you get, you know, so when you're Jean Valjean and you get arrested for stealing a loaf of bread and you appear before the magistrate. The magistrate says, J'accuse. Yeah. You're allowed to say, I only took a loaf of bread because I was poor. Um, you're still in court. Uh, you are still being charged with a crime and uh, you potentially could still be found uh, guilty. Uh, you potentially could still face jail time, right? All you're allowed to do is just throw up a reason, give an excuse, you know, give a give a reason why this might have happened. And you're not allowed to do that now. And you're not allowed to do that now. Yeah, if you're if your lawyer were basically to start going off about how you're, you know, you stole that bread because you're broke as shit, uh, you would be sanctioned by the judge. Or if... That. You know, lawyers similarly can't say, like, this is a systematic thing. This is, you know, these laws uh, are designed to criminalize poverty, blah, blah, blah. None of this is admissible, and it wouldn't be under this. But that's all this is, is making this kind of thing admissible to a court. You still have prosecutorial discretion, Mm -hmm. which, you know, the prosecutors can take this kind of thing into account if they want to, and in some cases they may. And you still have judges who are going to make the decisions they're going to make. So... They're, the, you know, Eric Johnson and Scott Lindsay, who was talking there, you know, are, are using this 
to make it sound like uh, the city just wants to abrogate its entire uh, misdemeanor code and, you know, contribute further to the lawlessness. Of course, like everything else, it's just totally fraudulent bullshit. Yeah. And I mean, to show it's fraudulent, such that they even bring up of a, a try in a attempt to look nefarious. They even bring up the quote from Pete Holmes when this first got discussed where, you know, our city attorney Pete Holmes basically said, uh, yeah, this is what my office basically already does as we try to take into account, like, you know, whether it's really worth, you know, prosecuting somebody essentially for being poor. But the thing is, for the average viewer, I feel like of Como, uh, who has no experience with the criminal justice system in any way. What, no. And yeah, it has about the under, same understanding of how like the court system works as my cat does. <laughs> you know, because this should have been Seattle's dying too. They they mentioned like uh, Seattle had like you know Seattle PD had you know one hundred thousand arrests last year. Yet there's not a hundred thousand people in prison because of it. How do you explain that? And so the things are trying to explain like just because you get arrested doesn't mean you go to court. Doesn't mean you go to jail. Right? There's like. It is steps, and that's not all unique to fucking Seattle. Yeah, that no, that is literally how criminal justice systems work all over the world. And yet, still <laughs> in America, a system where that is still the system, we imp- already yeah. currently imprison vastly more people than anyone else in the history of man. Yeah. So maybe when a pro- not, decides, not good enough. Yeah, it's not, decides yeah, it's, it's not worth guy. prosecuting someone. It's probably because it's not worth prosecuting someone. And they probably shouldn't have been arrested in the first place. Well, I mean, part of the reason that prosecutors have this discretion and part of the reason judges have it is that uh, without it, basically, with the number of people that police arrest, I mean, or we wouldn't, everybody would be in jail. We would not have a population anymore. We just have prison guards and want. inmates. Yeah, know? that's like, exactly what they want. That's it. Because you know, the police, right, to them, the police are out there trying to do the job, right? They're trying to get the job done, and these people are standing in the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, police have arrest quotas and all that kind of shit. They will they'll tell you they don't, but they fucking do. But the thing is, is that, yeah, I mean, they're bored. They're doing this shit. You can, in America, you can be arrested for literally anything that you do. And so it's one of those things like, so part of this reason is because the, the system wouldn't work. It would, yeah. it would break down if it ran the way they wanted to run. You're but, already part of, you know, part of the punishment is just getting arrested, spending the nights in jail, yeah. having to go to court, incurring the fees. That is already punishment that is for a lot of these misdemeanors is already a punishment that is far greater than is deserved. That you have to face regardless of if you're guilty or not. Like, exactly, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny, too, because the when we talk prosecutorial discretion, what they're talking about is you can bring these things up in the case in like in a court case. right? I mean, what they're really talking about in this bill is about you can petition the judge, essentially. But the reality is 90 percent of cases in Seattle never go before a judge. Right. The prosecutor basically just tells you you could either accept the shit sandwich I'm about to feed you or I'm going to fucking railroad you and you are forced to make a choice whether you did anything or not. Right. Um, but Cassie, you brought this point of like, you know, when, you know, wins enough enough as far as the prison population. And I mean, that was what I was thinking, too, as I watched that is we already got two million people in jail. Would three is it three million? Is this the goal? Four That's million, what's going to fix everything. That's yeah. just going to make all the problems go away is if we bump it from two to three mil for sure. Well, yeah. that's we have. Look, our capitalist system <laughs> creates a surplus population of desperate yeah. people. There's nowhere else for them to go until they start building the like mining colonies in space to ship all those people off to. 
mm-hmm. uh, to live and die out, you know, their years on an asteroid. Uh, warehousing them in prison is the answer to these people. And, you know, w- one of the things we talked about a lot from the very beginning on the show is that, uh, like, and you were just mentioning this, like, everything in America is basically illegal. Uh, you can be arrested for any million things in the course of your daily life. And that is used to to take it out to keep that surplus population, the poorest, most vulnerable population in America um, in line to keep them down, to to oppress them. And what's funny about this this proposal from um, I think it originally came from uh, Herbold, or at least the, I guess maybe I'm getting that from from the Como piece, it sort of implies well, that everything's so been unclear, accurate. Unclear. Yeah. So, and everything's yeah, been so accurate unclear. so far. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, but basically, you know, this is an attempt to identify that fact that, you know, people, poor people are criminalized using misdemeanor charges for bullshit. And that also that this crushing economic system pushes people to, uh, crimes of survival this acknowledges that right this legislation this proposal acknowledges that it puts it on the record in the municipal code it gives a theoretical tool to prosecutors deciding not to charge someone or because this could be used and to if it gets that far to defense attorneys to bring this up to bear witness to make it known in the public record that this person stole this loaf of bread to feed their family, stole, as Pete Holmes brings up, uh, formula to, you know, feed their baby. Um, and that is why it is dumb, and I don't like it, uh, because that's all it does. This is this is some lib bullshit. It's being, now I'm not one to say, oh, we can't, we shouldn't do things that'll, that give ammunition to the right that they'll spin. That's, that's also dumb lib brain shit. Uh, that is a bad consequence of this but that's not why i'm against it i don't actually care about that this is like it doesn't actually do anything like real it does not address the problems of the criminal justice system it does not like it does not stop the police from jesus like think look we've already said this on this episode like if uh people were just if seattle was really lawless and people were just getting away with anything there wouldn't be all these fucking people being arrested for shit that right like uh at protests and shit like the cops we already know the cops will arrest you for shit that you that can't even now be prosecuted because they want to fuck with you because they deem because they can as an enemy yeah yeah Yeah, a lot of harassment harassment because they see you as a political or social enemy yeah so whether say you're a political radical or you're poor or you're black Mm -hmm. they will harass you because they see that as their job whether or not you can ultimately be prosecuted. They will well, harass you. They will arrest they want, you. They want people to be afraid of them. Like, even mm-hmm. if you're not going to have a charge on your record, like, I don't want to fucking deal with that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so, exactly. But yeah. this is even worse than that shit. Right. This is, this is you know, people actually being charged uh, or potentially charged with some misdemeanor that this is not going to stop, right? This isn't going to stop that. So th- this is like... Um, this is like the old saying about like liberals just, you know, don't want to stop injustice. They just want to bear witness to it. And this is like a way for the city council in the city to acknowledge like, gosh, we really know a lot of our problems are actually to do with a lot of our supposed crime problems are to do with poverty. Um, and we want to acknowledge that here. But it's not going to 
change the power or the perspective of the police. You know, there is a lot of power in prosecutorial discretion. And what that means is that power is rooted, even though, you know, Pete Holmes says in this, oh, this reaffirms what we're already doing in my office, theoretically. That tells you that actually that's where the power is in that system. It's with having Mm -hmm. that prosecutor there. So having this law in there, if you get a, you know, more authoritarian prosecutor next time. Because you don't have the power to keep someone like Pete Holmes or better there because you haven't built that power or maintained it doesn't do anything for you. And so it doesn't do anything now. It doesn't do anything in the future. It's performative bullshit. It just papers over. It gives it puts lipstick on a small part of a pig that does nothing. So I am against this bullshit. It's it's a fucking waste of time. Well, I think uh, part of it, too, is it's just acting as if when it comes to the criminal justice system in America, all you have to do is turn the dials on it and find the right mixture. Yeah. And Metal the problem it. is it doesn't acknowledge the actual function of the police and the function of the criminal justice system, which is a system of mass class control, right? I mean, yeah. in the U.S., we talk about, like, you know, policing was built off of slavery and from the slave catchers. And sometimes I feel like, we, you know, sometimes we say that and it's, like, you know, almost empty in the air when we need to fault and be like, it's a labor control system. Like the police are there to make sure you keep fucking working. Right. And that you don't ask for anything better. And, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's the thing that this, I guess, reform, you know, maybe misses right from a left perspective. Uh, But of course, from a right perspective, I guess it means that uh, all crime is legal now. And it's just the purge downtown, which they then hilarious. So we'll talk about all the people, the cops arrested that week. And it's like, well, is all crime legal or the cops arresting people, which the fuck is. Yeah. Which one? Yeah, it's just total dissonance. Like it's just yeah. all bad vibes. That's all it is. Yeah. Well, speaking of bad vibes, maybe we should follow with our final clip from Ooh. the soul of Seattle. You can't see the fights for the soul of Seattle, but it's down there. Yeah. Mark Sidrin, the former city attorney, helped Seattle out of a different downtown crisis back in the day. The Frederick and Nelson department store closed in 1992, a staggering blow to an already struggling downtown retail core. We had to do something, and the mayor and the city council working together, uh, the prosecutors, city and county working together, put together a plan that produced the what I think triggered the renaissance that we saw downtown. A plan. The city went into crisis mode. The mayor and the council brokered a bold public-private partnership that changed our city. Good evening, everyone. It's a $400 million project affecting three city blocks in the heart of downtown's shopping district. Frederick and Nelson became the new Nordstrom flagship store, and Pacific Place was built. Downtown Seattle blossomed again. The difference between then and now is that there doesn't appear to be a plan at City Hall that even recognizes the crisis in recovering from COVID if they let the retail business districts, not just downtown, but in our neighborhoods, fail. Mr. Sidron believes that diversion programs are a tool. He believes social services can be valuable as well, but he's not so naive, nor has he ever been, to think that you can run a city by not stopping anyone from doing anything for any reason at any time. He has such a spooky, eerie vibe to him. Just wow. Like the, I mean, <laughs> so we already we heard like, oh, you mean yeah? Uh, there was other times previously in Seattle where there were economic downturns where, oh, where um, 
big department stores closed down uh, and vacated their building, but it wasn't because we had a giant homeless population. It was just for some other economic reason, but then we needed to do something so we didn't have a big uh, crime wave or like, what, what are we talking about here? Oh, public-private partnerships for real estate development. <laughs> ah, oh, okay. Okay, that's really what it is. We actually just want, we're just terrified that the real estate prices won't keep going up. That's what we're actually afraid of. We're, it's not, it's yes, it's having to see the visible pores, but it's at the back of our mind, we're thinking, God, if I can see them, then people thinking about buying this property I own someday will be able to see them. And that might might, might cause the fucking value to, to actually go down instead of up or even plateau, you know? Uh, so that's what we're talking about. We the we did this we did some fucking public private downtown core you know business district investment in the 90s and we're so fucking deluded that we think that that is what drove economic prosperity and property prices and development in the city of seattle hilarious not, not the rise of microsoft not fucking microsoft followed by amazon fucking <laughs> idiot no it was some dick twiddling shit with a few million dollars like shoveled out to developers that they could pocket while also just getting rich on their uh, exploding property prices and all the money coming into the area. Mm. But that's what they were. They're like, God, we cannot let that stop. We have to keep gentrifying and we have to keep getting money out the door to developers because God forbid our housing prices, our, our property values stop like rising and being a, basically bank account with walls and windows for global fucking rich people to store their money in. (laughs) Yeah. So this passage seemed to suggest that the soul of Seattle is literally an upscale mall. The soul of Seattle is the Nordstrom flagship store. And and Pacific place, which is a wretched hive of scum and villainy. basically. (laughs) Well, and I think the thing too is, Again, completely missing the point of the resurgence of real estate all over the country and the world, which is that what we saw over the last 40 years was a great economic divergence where essentially all the wealth in the country went to the wealthiest people in the country who had so much money they had to stuff it somewhere, which is why real estate prices have boomed everywhere, right? Which is running out a lot of stuff. And it brings up this kind of interesting thing about what is their vision for a future Seattle and Charles Mudani actually had a piece on this that I thought was really good, where he said, we should stop saying gentrification. We've like passed gentrification, yeah. and we're going into actually a new era where we're just going to empty the downtown Seattle core because everything will just be a stash pit for finance, right? Billionaire like, urbanism, right. I think is what he called it. Yeah, yeah. People won't be allowed to live anywhere in these areas because it'll be just the the real estate will be too valuable for, you know, renters or owners anymore. And it'll just be a place for some billionaire yet to dump his cash. And we're actually seeing that in Seattle. We have a record amount of uh, empty apartments and things like that, but they're all at the very high end. You know, we have a record amount of empty houses, but they're all at the very high end. And it's because they're essentially just being watch, used. Watch Macy's remain vacant for years, but mm-hmm. the price of the property never drop. Yeah. Think about right. that. Yeah, exactly. And it is this uh, sort of truly horrifying, but like obvious where they were going to go with this conclusion of, look, 
property values have to be protected. Uh, they're the number one thing of all. So we have to create this like inverted dystopian. It's a wonderful life where like, hey, the money is not here. It's in your house, Mark. And it's in your house, Tom. That's why we had to move your ass out of that house and put you in the jail in McNeil Island. You know, your house is now too valuable for you to be in there. Right. Yeah. And it's this uh, horrifying dystopic uh, world that capitalism creates all on its own, where it's not fit for human habitation. Right. It could we could turn Seattle, as Mudani sort of mentions, we could turn Seattle into the most expensive city on earth that's also the most wealthy city on earth that's also devoid of any human life whatsoever. And looks like a neutron bomb went off in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Um and for real estate speculators, perfect that's perfect scenario. And uh it's I mean, just such a fundamentally inhuman vision of the world. Uh, glad that it's broadcast into people's homes and will be probably for the next month over and over again. Yeah, uh, this will get played online nationally, you know? Mm-hmm. So we're at 96K right now. Oh, wow. So almost as popular as a single episode of Seattle Sucks. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, I've, I've podcasted. I know. I know that's not true. <laughs> Cassie, Cassie. Sound less uh, sarcastic and doubting about this, all right? We're, we're trying to have an image here. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. It, just absolutely repellent uh, way to spend an hour and a half. Uh, I feel uh, filthy. Thanks for watching it, guys. Hey, no problem. Uh, we'd know, also like to announce for our listeners. We're having a big event at the Beacon uh, Cinema showing Seattle's Dime back to back with Soul of Seattle. Uh, so come on up. No, no, <laughs> no, never do, do not watch this movie. Cassidy, thank you for joining us to talk about uh, the soul of Seattle or whatever from uh, the sh- pile of dog shit that is Como. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. We, you know, we look forward to having you back on to talk about what we plan to talk about, um, which is big, big news coming from uh, state. Yeah, so I would say, like, the homework for the listeners between now and next week, just, like, check out the Washington Campaign Workers Collective on Twitter. Um, What's the – it's at W – at WA underscore CWC. Um, And, like, check out the Bill of Rights because, like, that's the main thing we've been working on for the past, like, month or so. Um, And we sent that to, like – teapot and all the washington democrats the week before election day and so there's been a lot of movement happening with that since then and so we're hoping either like in the next few days or next week we're going to make a really exciting big announcement um so definitely check out next week's episode yeah definitely and it will be a positive episode yes today's episode i mean don't get me wrong we're definitely going to be like talking shit about a lot of like candidates and campaigns that like are probably beloved so maybe a little negative but like we're offering solutions so that's good yeah and also it's still a seattle sucks episode so there will be exactly yes always yeah Uh, absolutely um you know if you want to head over to seattle sucks patreon page right now recently posted the first episode of an ongoing series really it's a sequel to brian's uh mechanical freak presents episode on the uh 1944 dnc DNC, the convention um and it is uh a new series about harry truman and the cold war 
Uh, the first episode I listened to the other day, it's excellent. Also, again, like the last, like the DNC episode features uh, Justin Roll from Seattle DSA. Justin, <laughs> uh, uh, cool dude, friend of the show. Um, One of my Iowa volunteers too. Yeah, awesome. yeah, Iowa boy. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the this first in the three part series is about uh, the basically the decision to drop the atomic bombs on Japan and how that was uh, an awful crime against humanity with no real justification that uh, the American people have been lied to for a century that was really just about being internationally belligerent for belligerence sake in order to start the Cold War. Uh, really uh, disturbing, horrifying shit, but they make a very entertaining um, hour or so talking about it. And then there's going to be more coming on that. That's all on our Patreon. And stay tuned for a future Patreon episode where I um, read everyone's birth charts. Yes. <laughs> cool. That will right, also yeah. be coming very soon. Perfect. And speaking of Patreon, uh, we got two new patrons who are going to be able to listen Ooh. to that episode. Uh, we'd like to thank Nathan. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. Thanks to my uh, watching of The Crucible in high school. Nathan and Giles. So Giles, stay away from those rocks, I guess. Uh and welcome to the fold. Yeah, welcome suckers. Wait, cool. did you guys give me a shout out when I subscribed or no? Uh, we well, give everybody a shout yeah, out. Yeah, we always so. do. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't know. <laughs> 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 Just kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yep. And uh, with that, we'll say good night. Good night, Sia. Good night, Seattle. Uh, keep your soul safe. <laughs> Good night to the soul of Seattle. <laughs>